0: Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Of Coffee with Kareem, today I have a very special guest, Sarvang Parik. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist and received his master's in integral counseling from the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has extensive experience in practice and mindfulness and integrates this lens into a clinical approach with a sensitive sensitivity to trauma and sociocultural identity. Sarvang, pleasure to have you on the show today, buddy.
1: Hey, great to be here with you, Kareem.
0: Excellent. So, Servong, I think you do a lot of really interesting work. I mean, we've known each other for for many years. We met in grad school. We were in a men's group for several years. We've had a lot of personal journey and experiences together. Um, And I felt like you'd be a great person to come on the show because, you know, I've always found you to be very um, sensitive to different cultures, worldviews. And I think we've always had some very interesting discussions. So I figured, hey, let's get on. Let's have a cup of coffee. I'm sure you're probably drinking tea. Um, uh,
1: I'm drinking some chai, actually. All right, in honor of the occasion, yes, excellent, yeah, excellent. homemade.
0: Good, good old homemade chai. I remember that. That was good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell us a bit more about your upbringing?
1: Yes, uh, thanks, Kareem. Uh, my upbringing is as a Gujarati Hindu uh, man, and I actually was born in India, uh, but I came to migrate to the states. I was born in Bombay, in Mumbai, India and migrated out to the U.S. Uh, about age five and hopped around the nation doing a, a lot of migrant work with my parents. Uh, they were working in the motel industry and kind of just making connections. And I think they came in with about $1,500. And so I wow. uh, grew up pretty, you know, um, uh, low low class there and working class. And finally, after a few stints, we living, lived in Hayward, California, up in Washington State, Iowa, Chicago, uh, finally arrived in South Carolina, of all places, and that's where I kind of call myself, call home, as a second place of home, at least.
0: Extraordinary. And so, would you describe your family as, you know, faithful to a particular religion or worldview, and if so, what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, uh, we're definitely, I was raised in a pretty traditional uh, Hindu home, uh, Gujarati Hindu home, and that means that my parents both, particularly my mom, uh, held uh, a pretty strong spiritual practice of prayer and chanting in the mornings and the evenings before, uh, you know, we went home, went, went to sleep and we go to temple. when We had a local temple access uh, pretty regularly. That was our community place to go weekly or every, other, every few weeks. We'd be there and meet together and uh, worship together in that faith.
0: Now, you know, I grew up in a Muslim household, and um, uh, besides studying Hinduism and the different scriptures pertaining to Indian religion and philosophy, I think a lot of people are under false impressions of what traditional Hinduism is or the Vedic um, teachings are. And uh, I'd love for you to just, you know, maybe enlighten us a bit more about, you know, what what is really the core essential uh, theology of the Vedic tradition? Um, because I found that it had a lot of similarities and reflections to other uh, religions that talk about monotheism. Many people kind of just assume Hinduism is just this big polytheistic um, mishmash of different things. But I found, at least from my studies, that when you go deeper in, there is a supreme reality um, that is ultimately the core of, of these teachings. But maybe you can you can give us a quick uh, one-on-one on, on at least the Vedic tradition,
1: yeah, it's a great way to uh, break that down, and I appreciate you using the Vedic term because that was a, a pre, uh, you know, the Indus Valley civilization Vedic cosmology was really what was uh, no, what is known to us as Hinduism, and that wasn't really uh, conglomerated together uh, until after colonization. So I think a Vedic faith had a lot of earth-based practices, um, actually drew a lot from looking at the seasonal world here in earth, as well as looking at stars and deep planetary connections. And for me, um, that, again, that word ultimate reality really resonates. I think there was this, a very fundamental belief that it, it's this dualistic, uh, but paradoxically true place of having many different faiths, um, ideologies of not quite polytheistic, but uh, an understanding that Uh, Reality, as we know it, and divinity is spread out in many different facets of the world view. And it's also under one ultimate reality, one supreme reality, which is also can be known as God or it can be a a, a plane of existence, which is unfathomable to most human minds. And there's a congruence in that being there present with the human heart, kind of heart center, the Atman, the soul place. That we have a personal tie to that ultimate reality, along with this kind of supreme reality that resonates and is sometimes called Brahman um, as a kind of a, you know, predecessor, the pre movement of anything. And inside of all that, there are these various principles of pres- preservation, destruction, and cycles of large um, galactic time that are built into it. So understanding that chaos and order come into sequences and cycles, and that we are in actually many iterations of. What our current worldview is, and it 's pretty you know phenomenal to recognize that this faith that's so you know five thousand years old really had this such a large breadth of understanding that really resonates a lot with quantum reality and understanding of larger systems mm-hmm. knowledge which hadn't been able to be verified now until modern technology really has caught up to those types of things
0: yeah no, I mean it was it's really interesting how you broke that down, and I love the um You know, this idea of that first divine breath, often known in in the Vedic tradition as Om, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, in Arabic, we say Kun, and this idea of, you know, the divine said, be and it is, Kun faya kun. And there's also this idea of that first divine breath or vibration or word Mm -hmm. spoken, and then comes from that all of existence so you have this commonality uh and then also i i don't know if this is accurate i thought i wanted to ask you but is there also this idea that there are 99 heads to the ego in in the vedic tradition and that these uh part of the spiritual transformative process of of this tradition is to cut these heads off or something like that and the reason why i'm asking that is because i thought well that's interesting because in in Islam, the, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, the Divine has ninety nine names and attributes, and we're supposed to. Um, I thought that was an interesting kind of resonance that just like we have ninety nine heads of our ego that have to be destroyed, thus we replace with the the facets or the reflections of the ninety nine names of the Divine. And I'm wondering what your thoughts were about that and how it may connect to. Um, this worldview of the Vedic tradition.
1: That's fascinating, actually. Um, I, I think, you know, what I'm familiar with is the sacred number of 108, which is in our mala rosary. Uh, often that's a, a number of, uh, for a sequence of prayers and uh, recitations of anything. Typically, if you can get to 108 recitations of anything, whether it's breath or a mantra to use, that's a sacred number and how it connects with the cosmology. And inside there, um, it's actually what I know of as the 10 heads um, one of the personifications of kind of the antithetical to uh, God would be uh, Ravana, uh, who kind of represents, you know, in a Judeo-Christian way, kind of uh, Lucifer, who himself is actually quite a learned mm. scholar um, and had deep, deep faith, but he misused that. And he was a uh, he has he grew a lot of power, which grew his ego, and these ten heads of Ravana are what are known to be these different personifications, as you mentioned, to the ego. And that was where this myth of uh, the Ramayana where Rab, uh, Rama you know targets Ravana, and there's an interesting historical backlash to that, but it's uh that's the closest I know to it, but it's a I think there's a lot of different um, uh, different threads of stories that are woven into one, so I can totally see where there probably exists someplace also with the nine nine head of the ego makes a lot of sense
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. And another way I kind of interpreted um, at least my readings of how the Vedic tradition evolved into some of the uh, mythic or, or religious structures today, you know, is like, okay, well, e- even in Islam, there's this idea of the d- the divine reality has these 99 facets uh, or, or names and attributes. And some mm-hmm. of them are similar to what you may call gods with a lowercase g. In, in some structures of Hinduism like the destroyer the creator the what you know the one who elevates the one who lowers the one who gives you know provision the one who gives guidance mm-hmm. and so these are all the same attributes that you find in Islam too so then I, I wondered well maybe you know all of these personifications over time these mini gods were simply just personifications of the attributes of that ultimate Supreme reality and because obviously India is one of the most ancient civilizations on the planet you know there was a lot of ev- that happened there, but I found at least in my readings when I went deeper in, there was a lot of what I would even call monotheism or monism that existed, you know, beyond all of these, um, you know, expressive structures of the ultimate reality that have now personified into what we would call polytheism, at least anthropologically speaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's, just that, contra- it's that tension that exists within the subcontinent and anyone of uh, the Hindu faith that... Really, I think there is a. Everyone would say there's one God, right? And then there's also a complete truth and understanding that there's many pathways to get to that understanding of God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the Hinduism, as I've under, come to understand it, and I see it in practice, my parents and families like they never they never discredit any other faith or any other way of seeing and perceiving reality and having God as a understanding and. Who that God is or naming of that God is unnecessarily, you you know, it's just a pathway to have come to one's own heart and understanding. And so, um, you know, to even me, I don't typically I have always a hard definition of between polytheistic and monotheistic. It kind of exists simultaneously between both of those. And it really is just a matter of interpretation on how scholars in the Western tradition might see it.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I mean, I, at least as a Muslim, I, I always, I mean, one of the things that Islam teaches us is that, you know, the Quran says every nation, every community and tribe has had a uh, divine communication. Right. Mm. That every no, there was no place where humans did not get those divine text messages. Right. It's not like I think sometimes Mm -hmm. the Judeo-Christian worldview and and sometimes atheists often uh, attack it and being like, you know, what kind of a God would just fixate on like the Middle East or whatever. Right. Like how come only these people got some sort of divine communication and nobody else did but actually islam doesn't teach that islam says that yes there was a heavy focus on the middle east probably for practical geographical reasons Mm -hmm. right but that every nation and tribe from the native indians of the americas to persia india china um you know europe you had divine communications and prophets and perhaps that may suggest why you have uh, if you really look at the core of a lot of these ancient religions and and stories There's so much commonality, right? There's so much commonality when you really reduce it down to the essence. You know, like even this idea of Lucifer being a learned person. I mean, this is also found in Islam, Christianity, and uh, Judaism. Like that he was amongst the ranks of the angels and he understood. He was actually a servant of God, but then he rebelled and so on and so forth. So I found that to be a really interesting um, point and, and hopefully people will... Um, recognize that there's actually a lot more that unifies us rather than separates us. But we sometimes get into now, you know, identity politics and geographical, you know, warfare and economic. And, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of sad. So, Servang, tell tell me more or tell us more about why you decided to study psychology and want to become a therapist. Um, you know, to be honest, I was, uh,
1: you know, I was pretty troubled as a high school teen, uh, middle school teen teenager, uh, partly because my brother, who was 10 years my elder, uh, was diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, when I was eight years old. And so when he was 18, he went through a schizophrenic break, a pretty intense psychotic break that I got to see uh, firsthand a level of um, a type of suffering that I'd never encountered before and, you know, t- has been something that has left a, la- laughing, a lasting impression on me and my family. and um, And seeing him kind of go through the mental health institution being supported by but also being um, you know changed dramatically as a being within that uh, kept me really connected to something that uh, I could not understand or fathom but helped me stay connected to I had this kind of built-in gravitation towards wanting to understand human psychology wanting to be of some kind of support I didn't know what that looked like Mm. but Uh, I think later I realized I kind of just needed to figure out my stuff because the places that were broken and affected by the trauma of my brother were never really healed or addressed in my family system because of our cultural uh, distance from psychological understanding and services. It it allowed me to kind of start working on that healing work. And at the same time, I recognized that there was a gift or benefit I had to others in understanding uh, their suffering and just being available and being able to be present to that. And that's led me to this path of deeper uh, study and inquiry into counseling and psychology.
0: That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So I I know that you've now also specialized in um, specifically working with trauma, correct?
1: That's definitely one thing I, I definitely focus on.
0: Now, a lot of people are confused about this. They're not sure if it, you know, what is it, how is there a spectrum of trauma you know is there like a mild or lighter form of trauma all the way down to severe can you maybe give us a definition of what is trauma and what are some of the factors that indicate a traumatic event and perhaps a bit more about this severity scale
1: yeah it's a good way to look at it there's i think there's a lot of uh, different perspectives and positions but essentially trauma is anything uh, a distressing event that uh, really disrupts one's own coping and so Uh, One way to look at it is uh, small T traumas that most all of us are undergoing and have undergone from, uh, you know, uh, emotional disturbances um, in our family and as children, time when, you know, we got bullied slightly by friends um, to anything as we grow into adults, the stresses that we might feel might be classified as lower T traumas. And then we have the bigger T t traumas, which are kind of uh, severe psychological and or physical events that have happened that really disrupt the ability of the mind-body system to comprehend and react and respond appropriately to those conditions. So it might be a situation where we're held at gunpoint, uh, robbed, where we felt disempowered and we're actually able to find any resolution. Um, We might have been cut off from a place of feeling agents in our own uh, response to these types of events or we were made to be helpless uh, where someone uh, you know had power over us or situation had power over us so it could be very situation and cultural so the trauma of a nation when we have things that happen like in vegas and the shootings that is a, a traumatic event that affects you know countless people and a nation really because of the psychological harm that get, gets created which in that moment we don't know how to respond as a community uh, or these wildfires that are raging here are a, a extreme tra- trauma events that are uh, affecting thousands and thousands upon people and their connected communities who all will start to get take on a vicarious response to the level of um, disempowerment that that can create psychologically and physically. I think those things are really valu- valuable to note that it's not just a, a mental, emotional process, but it's a very much a deeply embodied process that happens that disrupts one's physiological response
0: yeah no that's very interesting so i want to summarize what i understood so there's there's trauma with lowercase t um, which are more mild things most likely everyone has some of that um, and then there's uppercase t or uh, which are the more severe situations um, and essentially trauma is an event where a person goes through something that was unexpected Um, shocking, harmful, they felt helpless, they felt disempowered, and that they were almost robbed of their agency. Um, And so as a result of this, something happens to us psycho-emotionally and physiologically, which... Almost what keeps us like stuck or something, can you tell us more about the biological and uh, aspect of this? How does it really work as far as the mind and and the body, and what maybe you can take us in now through practically speaking, how do you even treat trauma or start to treat trauma and can people self treat certain types of trauma? why or why not
1: yeah it's a great thing to really investigate I think a lot of uh, uh, Mental health understandings have been really forwarded by neuroscience research and a brain science scanning to recognize where uh, trauma is understood to have not only an impact on one's memory system, so it can be lodged in the memory and the amygdala, of the, the brain cortex, where it processes emotions. And when it's overwhelmed, that amygdala, amygdala kind of sets a lot of fear response into the limbic system, which kind of exaggerates a lot of emotional responses. And so that's something that happens deeply in our. Kind of emotional processes, but it's also some place uh, that is lodged into our cellular system and our physiological response. So large muscle masses, like the the legs, which are often used and mobilized to activate um, a flight response in threat, or the arms, which are you know activated to fight in a response that might be uh, stressful and dangerous, right? Or the whole body that often responds to stress. Uh, high stress in these situations to freeze the entire nervous system, right? So these are like the flight, fight, and freeze responses that our body knows to do just biologically to survive a situation that anything that might threaten our being. So it could be a car accident in that situation. Of course, we're driving a vehicle, we're in a wheel, wheel, and if we're all of a sudden hit, our body is still going to respond as if we're somewhere out in the forest you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And if you feel find a threat, you would want to run away, fight or freeze. None of these are better or worse. They're all just a, a way of responding without having to think. It bypasses our executive thinking skills. But now we're in situations where some kind of traumatic experience can happen and it could be in an urban environment or it could be at the home and the body is still responding in kind, but it doesn't have a place to r- release any of this built up charge and the discharge kind of stays stuck in the body and also psychologically in the mind. And so people might experience flashbacks, they might experience a high sensitivity to loud sounds or smells that might remind them of this event. And a lot of it's right underneath this consciousness. So they're not quite aware, they've actually, their brain has done a sophisticated job of not really looking at the main traumatic event because that would be overwhelming to the nervous system. But then. All these little hyper signals that come in, that are processed, they are still responding because the body is still trying to protect them from having any more of these kind of exposures to such a response. And, and so then having to start to really build safety in one's body, um, start to really re-inhabit the physical body. A lot of people that have traumatic responses can disassociate. They can go into kind of fantasy realm. Uh, move away from the actual experience in presence, and so this is where the practices that that we're more formally going to explore a little bit later, mindfulness, can be really helpful of being bringing people back into presence and in the body in a very graduated way to re inhabit their own agency.
0: L- let me let me try to break this down. So, if a thousand years ago you and I were walking in the woods and we saw a bear. Our instinct is not going to sit there and cognitively process like, oh, what a nice bear or is the bear going to eat us or will it chase us? Our instinct is we just book it. We start running, right? This is an example of flight, for example, right? And we start running and we run and run and run and maybe the bear follow us, maybe he doesn't. But at some point, you and I find some safety when we sit down, we're totally out of breath, now in this situation have we discharged the traumatic shock of seeing the threat of a bear at this point or would some sort of traumatic recovery uh, be required a thousand years ago in this situation where we're out in the woods and we now find our way back to our village or our, wherever we live um and then comparing that to if i'm walking down the street and some guy throws me against the wall and all of a sudden pulls a gun out and says give me your wallet um in this situation i can't necessarily book it uh he takes my wallet he wa- he runs off and now i'm sitting there shaking and full of all this adrenaline and fear um and i don't know what to do with myself so this is this is why the sit- i'm more likely to lodge this type of energetic charge, as you said, and why it can kind of stay stuck with me. And if I don't have a space to discharge it over time, it's going to start to impact me on a daily basis. Is that one way to understand what you're explaining here with these two scenarios?
1: That's exactly, that's perfectly well given example of, and that, that experience of, you know, the idea of you kind of being stuck after the burglary robbery and shaking we, you know, How often have we seen that something scary happens? We see in children often where there, something scary has happened. They're just kind of frozen and wanting to shake and cry. And how often as parents or adult might go and say, hey, it's going to be okay. You kind of hold them and say, like, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. You kind of hold them still. Actually, their physical body is already responding in a way that's trying to release the trauma, which would be the shaking and let them shake. And actually a positive thing might be do, yeah, go ahead and, you know, let them go ahead and shake their legs, get it out. Because animals do this all the time. A deer that's frozen headlights will start to shake and then run away because they're discharging that energy. You don't have to worry about the emotional leftovers, but our cognitive executive function, our big, big forward thinking brain uh, has a bit of a dilemma because it starts to keep us stuck. That thinking process actually interrupts the physio- physiological releasing sometimes.
0: Fascinating.
1: So we can't think our ways out of trauma.
0: So how? what are some of the ways that we can identify if we do carry trauma? Because a lot of people, you know, at least in my community, they're still unclear about what it is, how to identify it, and whether it's actually a real thing. Um, how what are some of the signposts of of somebody knowing if they still they may be carrying trauma and are there any types of methods you said you know it's about releasing and discharging this energy through the body so does that mean like if i go get a massage and take some deep breaths that i'm going to relieve my body of this trauma or is there a specific type of method that has to help the release of this trauma because i know there's various approaches to this
1: there's various approaches and i think you know Yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, people's positions that might be in here. And, you know, one way we can tell um, would be just to look at our own baseline emotional response to situations. Do I find myself getting easily frustrated or overwhelmed? Am I finding myself what I could call hyper aroused, uh, meaning I'm much more sped up? I'm kind of, yes, am I I responding um, to situations in a way that's a bit more increasing my um, agitation or frustration? Am I h- more hyper-vigilant? Um Am I tra- looking around my surroundings often? am I easily overwhelmed? Um, am I you know these are hyperaroused states that we can look at. I'm having a hard time sleeping. My adrenals are kind of kind of have me amped up a bit more. Almost like if I had coffee all the time slightly, that might be a way that we can perceive that level of hyperarousal. And then hypo-arousal would be if we're finding ourselves, I'm kind of sleepy often or sedated. Um, I'm not able to think very clearly. I want to sleep more regularly. I I sleep for long periods of time. Um, I might have intrusive thoughts as well. I might have nightmares that come in and wake up with a fright and sweat. Don't understand why fully. Um, Again, my relationships to loved ones or people I care about, you know are often maybe some signs might be strained. I might be a little bit on my edge, easily stressed by them, um, snap a little bit more, or disconnect completely, want to be more introverted, avoid people altogether or social situations that in history before, I thought I would find pleasure in. and now I kind of avoid those things and don't do anything that could be very pleasurable and it might be hard to access feelings of pleasure or joy at all. And anything that might bring any intense, an intense sensation, even if it's a positive sensation, I might actually have a hard time and avoid those things. Those are all clear signs.
0: Right. No, that's really helpful. So can trauma actually produce a um, depression? Because that last point you mentioned of not being able to find joy in anything, is that the same thing as, as also being depressed? Or somebody could just be, have PTSD and they happen not to be able to find that joy as well? Or is there a distinguishing property
1: there? So PTSD would be, you know, if I have all these symptoms and have lasted for a certain severity for over a few months, and there that, that that's a kind of acute sy- symptom that we might have to work with, might which might include anxiety and depression. Now, after we've started to work with the PTSD, I'm able to talk about this event, and if I'm still working with these signs of depression or signs of anxiety. Then there might be a different diagnostic. A criteria that we might have to look at again these are just kind of systems of, of looking at patterns that might be useful for people not necessarily to say I'm stuck with this depression it might be just something as a way to identify what I'm dealing with so that someone's helping me or if I'm helping myself I can recognize what do i what are the set of or cluster of experiences that might best be understood
0: cultural sensitivity therapy what's that all about and, and why is that important in diverse populations
1: yeah, you know, so my experience, uh, again, as an Indian man has been, uh, you know, those that have been uh, clients that have been compelled to kind of come to come to me are often exploring issues of identity, and they don't, they might be um, a black man that's working in a nonprofit world that is predominated by a lot of white folks or people that don't look like him, and he's reading his own, um, his he's had a lot of series of Stressors and frustrations, and now if he's working with any other clinician, they might just look at those set of situations independently. Uh, working with someone that has uh, this lens of cultural identity and not knowing that how that impacts people, we're lo- you know looking at larger systems of trauma, right? So oppression or race and uh, racism in the workplace can be built into that understanding, and so I'm recognizing, oh, as a black man in this day and age in U.S. He might have a particularly uh, set of experiences that have him targeted, feeling much more isolated. He might have a lot of stressors that I might otherwise not have to look at, right? And so I can just bring that knowledge and awareness into the room. So he's, I'm not looking at him having the issue. It's like, oh, this is an issue in our society, in the fabric for society. It, It might be an issue with his workplace. And now he has that understanding and he has someone that helps him hold that understanding He's no longer seeing himself as a problem. It's like, oh, I'm setting, I'm dealing with these set of is- issues that I need to figure out how to work with. Does that make sense?
0: I'm hearing you say that um, it has a lot to do with self-awareness and also recognizing what are specific triggers or stressors in one's environment and seeing what are the most productive ways to influence the environment as well as... Um, shape one's own attitude towards oneself or what's surrounding them. At least that's my stab at it, but feel free to clarify.
1: No, that's a great way to put it.
0: Excellent. And um, uh, meditation, uh, mindfulness uh, meditation is one of your uh, practices as well, Servon. Can you tell us more about that? And perhaps is this one of the techniques that's used to help people with um, um, healing from trauma or coping from other um, aspects of, of one's life can you tell us more about the benefits of this and is it something that anybody can do or is it you know a religious thing or you know tell us more about this idea of mindfulness and, and meditation
1: yeah so mindfulness as a way of uh, exploring uh, self-awareness has been something that's been a practice within buddhist uh, communities for a while particularly uh, theravadan buddhism and, you know, it was not until the 1970s where this particular concept that was drawn from it of mindfulness was uh, lifted up. And John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who was working with cancer patients, actually uh, started to see the benefit of using mindfulness uh, as a way and approach uh, with cancer survivors, or cancer patients, rather. These are folks that are dealing with lots of suffering that Normal uh, clinical interventions really doing much to help them feel better about their life, and so mindfulness is a way of helping one be present, uh, focusing on bodily sensations, being able to disidentify with the experience of the actual pain, just by being present to the body and having a a level of acceptance within that, and kindness and curiosity to one's experience uh, allowed there to be a lot more change in these a patient's response and attitude towards their illness, which were terminal. And so he began coining, uh, kind of not coining, but uh, bringing to popular light this concept of mindfulness, which now we know in the Bay Area since uh, the last decade, extremely well. I've heard of it in very many places, but really, it's a way of being present to one's experience with a a level of non-judgment and curiosity. And anyone can do it. It's not necessarily at, at all tied to any form of faith or uh, religious thought of ideals or beliefs. Uh, there's a very secular way of looking at it as well. And um, it doesn't even have to be meditation. It's really something that can be brought into. There is meditation techniques in, inside of mindfulness that can be applied. But it's also a certain way of life or way, ethos. You can say that can be really helpful, particularly with trauma or any identity oriented issues and. Um, in general stress a way to respond to chronic stress
0: mm-hmm. so can you walk us through maybe three practical steps on how to actually achieve some form of meditative meditation like if you were going to instruct me right now give me the 101 um, how would you guide me through mindfulness and meditation yeah
1: so mindfulness meditation let's let's just do a little bit together and maybe any listeners can also practice if they are safely uh, available to do so and so if they're not driving
0: yeah don't do this if you're driving but you, can, but you can try this yeah. at home, and That's you can do
1: it while you're driving. Just don't <laughs> close your eyes doing it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. So you, you know, just to be aware of the seat that you're sitting in, and you don't have to close your eyes for now. But just softening the gaze, letting the eyes kind of sit back a little bit into the eye socket, and we're just going to be present to our body's experience of weight and pressure. So feeling our sits bones, maybe if there's back support feeling our feet on the ground. Just notice that overall weight. and Letting ourselves be more present with our breath. So however the breath is happening, without needing to change it, we're just going to follow the inhale and follow the exhale. However it is, and you might notice even bringing awareness to this breath, it starts to change slightly, and that's okay. And just letting ourselves be aware of any other sensations as uh, so temperature, sounds around us, any sensations in the body that might be showing up, tension or looseness, type the type of energy I'm holding the quality of light I just saying if we can stay with that breath in the foreground of our experience and it's very normal for our mind to be thinking planning going to work going to see what's after this or is this working and that's okay and it's normal. So just invite our attention back to the breath or the body as what we call an anchor, a place to ground our attention. Even if it's a couple of breaths and we lose our concentration there, just bringing it back. And the ability to kind of kindly bring our attention back as if it was a stray puppy that starts to go off the path. We don't want to kick it or, or just yank it. We want to gently invite it back. That's the quality of non-judgment and kindness that we want to approach with our own internal experience. And when we're ready, we can just let ourselves come back into conversation. Mm,
0: Thank you. I like really did that. I felt myself in the chair. I took my deep breaths, kept coming back to the body, um, I have always appreciated meditation and deep mindfulness and breathing um, and I think a lot of people can benefit from that you know those in our audience who happen to identify as Muslim you know when you do your your daily prayers you know taking deep breaths during those prayers and, and taking you know time to really uh, prostrate and, and, and do the proper uh, movements it's almost like a type of yoga if you will and of course, we know that before and after prayer, you're meant to sit and breathe and chant. Um, so you have a lot of similar uh, vibrations going here. And I think that many of us, we don't really s- sink in and anchor ourselves as Servang has, has demonstrated. We just kind of do it like it's any other chore. Like, oh, I got to do the laundry. I got to pick up my kid. I got to pray, you know? It's like, why is it just another chore? Why isn't that our, that's our personal little vacay right? Our personal little vacation to reduce that stress and anxiety. And isn't there a lot of data, uh, Servong, that would suggest that people that meditate and, and do these types of breathing exercises actually have um, health benefits more so than those who don't?
1: Oh, for sure. There's been, uh, there's a fair amount of research being done with major institutions like Harvard, UCLA, and uh, they have a whole mindfulness centers at some of these schools to make uh, study these. And uh, actually, recently, I got to participate in a uh, uh, a brain study around mindfulness. So I had my whole brain scanned while I was practicing uh, as a way to kind of help track some of these patterns. That was that was a, on the side, but it's very fascinating to see my own brain. Um, but they, you know, it's been proven that the brain structures literally can change with enough mindfulness practice. Where the places I'm mentioning, the limbic center, which it controls our emotions, right, the center of our brain. Uh, the larger they are, the more inflamed they are. There's more reactivity, and so those that have had trauma or any emotional uh, series of emotional stressors, uh, often have larger limbic centers, uh, which means that they might have more reactivity emotionally or less uh, ability to rein that in. And people with uh, mindfulness practice, that area is actually a bit more developed and it's still large in terms of its sensitivity, but it's less inflamed, and so there's less reactivity. Uh, the uh, The cortical connections between two hemispheres Connecting the brain can also be stronger. There's a little bit more gray matter. Um, And so the overall kind of uh, the cords that bundle up the brain are actually a little bit tighter for folks. Uh, They can see a lot of benefits in attention, memory, uh, executive functioning, the ability to kind of uh, regulate one's focus. You know, I was having us kind of focusing on our breath and staying with that. So over a period of time, you can see this is actually developing that focus muscle.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating.
1: and so people's stress response often goes down because they're able to quickly respond they still get stressed people get stressed even if they're being able to practice mindfulness uh, but their ability to bounce back or respond to that stress more appropriately is much greater
0: great excellent now b- before we end today um, Sarvong I wanted to ask you kind of loop back to this trauma it's one of my it's a very fascinating subject to me um, what do you have any tips besides you know meditative practice? Um, that people maybe can can do just to help relieve themselves of these daily anxieties and stress and perhaps working with the lowercase t trauma. Obviously, if you have severe or, or uppercase uh, trauma, you want to go see a specialist. And um, mo- mo- you also want to see a, a someone who specializes in trauma work like Sarvong, not necessarily just any MFT or any um, counselor, right? You usually want somebody who understands this and, and specializes with this, correct?
1: Right, exactly. It's very important to get the right kind of support and uh, to recognize and if you have any doubts, it's always best to get a consultation with an expert just to check in because many people provide those for free.
0: Absolutely. And uh, so what would be some things that you and I could do as as people at home? I mean, I've seen videos where you can like, do different types of like tapping and padding on your body to release some tension or discharge. Um, I asked earlier, like, is getting a really nice, thorough, deep massage with focus on breathing, is that a way to discharge some trauma? Um, what are your thoughts about these different kind of um, self-implementing practices and is there any harm or benefit to some of these things?
1: Yeah, again, again as long as we're dealing with kind of uh, the daily, day-to-day stressors and uh, talking about the kind of lowercase t, uh, any of these would be a great way to support oneself. Um, you know, with the big big t traumas, uh, there could be some uh, dangers and risk involved in high, higher breathing exercises and other things. So you want to do that with the right professional care because their body can respond and be a lot of miswiring. So, but I think you know, exercising and using the body, doing things like. Uh, Getting deep tissue massage, making sure that we're responding and uh, tracking our stress level, finding ways to you know bring the stress back down, not just to stay amped up, are really great ways. Um, And just you know, tapping is a great uh, in these kind of rhythmic releases of exercise, can from walking and jogging to um, you know doing some kind of dance practice or having you know you know, just being very present to one's body experience while in the shower can be a place to really let go of a lot of stress and tension. Um, I think having everyone get some kind of body massage is a great thing that people can overlook and but easily access uh, to manage a lot of emotions. And it feels great. We all feel great after a massage, you know, whether it's light, gentle massage to a little bit more intense deep tissue, as you said, uh, they can be a really great way to get our support. Um, and a lot of professional massage therapists are you know, more and more becoming uh, uh, learning about trauma, so they they make they can make pro- appropriate referrals as as well if there's something that comes up inside of that.
0: Right. And and by the way, sometimes like even my wife and I and I know you, you're you familiar with these practices, uh, just like lie down on the floor, you know, lie on your belly, have your spouse or friend or family member just take their hands and gently press up and down your muscles going up and down your body. Right. And then flip. And even just something as simple as light padding and leaning into your weight without actual massage, so to speak, that can cause so much relief for people and alleviation. I mean, something as simple as Simple as that. You can just do it at home. You don't have to spend money to it's go to so a massage true. therapist. I love how you also gave the idea of taking, um, you know, a nice bath or shower. I certainly like taking hot showers. I like to stretch in the shower. I find that I like get my muscles all elasticated before I start my day every morning. Um, of course, I, like I mentioned, the breathing and meditation, whether you're, you know, observing salah or not. I mean, this is a wonderful way to just get in touch and anchor yourself. Um, I'm also a walker. You know, even 15, 15, 20 minutes a day makes a huge difference when you don't do anything, right? So I think these are some really good, um, uh, accessible, and practical uh, tips and and suggestions. Uh, Sarvang, is there anything else you wanted to add to that or or, um, close with?
1: No, I think, yeah, I think, you know, I'm just letting people know that. To not be scared, you know, like a, to go to try something new, like these, it, often we're taught and, you know, I know in my community and culture, we have so many dances and so much other spirit practice, but the body can be this place that's kind of scary to investigate or get touched on. Um, and as I've gotten myself more and more open to that, brought that into my family, we have all benefited. You know, we've all taken so much benefit. My parents are often so stressed. They never learn these ways of working so i've had the privilege to be exposed to this in the bay area in california Um, they're still in south carolina dealing with stress so they are benefiting a lot from being open-minded and letting themselves try out these new ways whether it's uh you know getting a massage with each other or just having a nice hug really a 30-second hug with somebody you can feel safe with releases so much oxytocin and boosts the mood helps the body relax and release there's so many little things and so And to teach our young people these ways uh, and to model them can be really helpful in these times of, you know, political upheaval where there's a lot of stressors and uh, natural disasters are happening all around us. And I don't think that's slowing down anytime soon. So I think our ability as a community to respond and evolve ourselves appropriately uh, is going to be the best way to remedy and find the medicine that we need.
0: No, that's a wonderful advice. And um, I, I love that you brought that up. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, please. I've seen this for years, and Sarvang has probably seen this too. What's up with our some of our Eastern communities just lacking affection? Like, you know, you know how many people Sarvang I've I've talked to, and they've sat on my couch, and they're like, "Yeah, my mom and dad never touch me or hug me or anything." Like, I'm like, "What?" Like, really? Like, it's almost shocking, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and even it's different. Like, sometimes, like, yeah, I get it from my mom, but my dad never, or sometimes it's both. It's very right? gendered. And I, and, yeah, yeah it's, sometimes it's, or sometimes you're not getting it from either. Um, and it's interesting, you know, that, uh, you know, a lot of our cultures are so warm and passionate, but sometimes when it comes to something like this, it's, like, absent in, in some family households. Not everybody, but it certainly exists a lot more than I thought, uh it, it would um and or at least have observed over the years. Um so that's that's a great reminder that even some hugs, some, you know, gentle touches and and, and touches of affirmation and care that that goes a long way too, and, and releases oxytocin. It it enhances bonding between human beings, uh, and of course, if we feel more bonded to those around us, we're going to feel more secure, less anxiety, and we're unlikely going to do some of the horrific things that we unfortunately tend to witness around us.
1: Yep, that's a great way to put it. I'm I'm glad that you're making that call out for people to kind of really uh, clarify what's happening with that, and to you know support loving touch.
0: Love it, man. Well, I'm sending you a digital hug and loving touch. And hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll have some chai soon in person. Sarvang, it was a pleasure and honor to have you on today. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon.
1: Thanks, baby. Much, much appreciate are loving with the work you're doing. And, uh, great conversation. Very stimulating.
0: Thanks for tuning into the show today. I'm your host, Kareem Sirajuddin, founder of New Human Consulting. If you'd like to work with me, please visit our website and get in touch join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. You can spare a dollar for your brother Kareem. And if you can't do that, please leave us a review on iTunes today. Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast.